0: The slaves who buried the pharaoh. The CIA uses thought reform, programming, and indoctrination on its own employees. Patrick J. McGarvey, a veteran of 14 years in U.S. intelligence services, described the cryptocracy's more ordinary indoctrination procedures in his book *CIA: The Method* and the madness. McGarvey said that his indoctrination was carried out in a classroom which was right out of the Manchurian candidate. It was a cavernous room, not unlike a 19th century surgical exhibition pit. That training, he said, consisted of an admixture of common sense, insanity, old-time religion, and some of the weirdest lectures you can imagine. The most important result as this early training, as the CIA was concerned, McGarvey said, was the attitudes they managed to immaculate among the recruits. Many among us believed in the intelligence establishment simply because we were part of it. This attitude lingered for years among us, and today, in middle age, most of us still talk about the mind-bending job they did on us during the training period. I'm convinced that this manipulation of attitudes had been responsible for keeping silent the many men who have since left the craft of intelligence. Because of my indoctrination, I still get a visceral twinge and have qualms of conscience about writing this. McCarvey was referring to a behavior modification when he said, CIA has a wonderful informal system of rewards and punishments for the faithful and unfaithful. Other fragments of information have leaked through the many memory blocks and security oaths of former CIA employees. They can be found scattered throughout the, quote, true confessions literature of former spooks. They offer further glimpses of the CIA's interest in mind control, but they are only glimpses. The most impressive part of his initial CIA indoctrination, writes Miles Copeland is the attitude toward loyalty, security, precision, attention to detail, and healthy suspicion that it manages to implant in the minds of the trainees. The fact is in that this aspect of the indoctrination had been designed by some of the nation's best psychologists, employing the most modern techniques of motivational research. Certainly, it achieves its purpose. The psychologists resent the insuation that they're engaged in brainwashing, arguing that the effect of what they have contributed to the training is exactly the opposite of brainwashing as practiced by the Chinese. Instead of conditioning a person so that he can accept only approved ideas, it sharpens his instincts and critical faculties so that he can recognize specious political reasoning when he encounters it. Also the psychologists believe their course imparts a strong sense of mission which is lacking in other branches of government. Despite the CIA psychologist's defense of their reverse brainwashing, terrible damage had been suffered through the people who had matriculated from the CIA's mind control projects. Those techniques employed for indoctrination and loyalty training of CIA personnel are but the beginning of mind control operation, which is the most effective security device sort of assassination. Institutionalized secrecy came to America on the eve of World War II. From the beginning, psychology was both the most important external weapon against the Nazis and Japanese and the internal control mechanism for the wartime government. Psychological warfare was used in World War I, but by the beginning of World War II it had taken on a new dimension. Previously, the inspiring, depressing, persuasive, or misleading messages of propaganda had been delivered to target populations via the printed page or by word of mouth. In World War II, for the first time, it became possible through radio to address the entire population of a country at the same time. The effects of propaganda so magnifying became an important tool in warfare. After the war, electronic propaganda became the staple weapon for waging the Cold War. Persuasion, argument, propaganda, and indoctrination went out over the airwaves, not only to enemy populations, but to our own civilian populations as well. The full story of the OSS and the beginnings of the CIA was not known until 1976, when a government report, the War Report of Strategic Services, was declassified. In 1940, General William Donovan was appointed President Franklin D. Roosevelt's Special Emissary. Upon his return from a Mediterranean tour, he reported that neither America nor Britain is fighting the new and important type of war on more than just the smallest scale. Our defenses against political and psychological warfare are feeble and even such gestures have been made toward carrying the fight to the enemy are pitifully inadequate. Donovan urged the President to prepare for combat in the field of irregular and unorthodox warfare as well as in the orthodox military areas. Five months before the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, President Roosevelt added one more new bureau to the New Deal bureaucracy. It was tagged COI, perhaps a fitting acronym for the publicly shy Office of the Coordinator of Information. Its leader was, of course, William Donovan. General Donovan had been called a queer figure who comes off three-quarters Machiavellian and one-quarter boy. According to Anthony K. Brown, he recruited communists to kill Krauts. He feared and distrusted communists in places where they quoted, in Italy and France, he could never quite make up his mind what to do politically, and since political belief was the clandestine's primary motive, his policies often failed, and even when they succeeded, led to interminable muddles. Likeable, even admirable on occasions, he was in fact an Elizabethan man swaggering about capitals and beautiful cord, displaying a fine calf for a riding boot, but forever dependent really upon the British for the finesse which that secret struggle demanded. The British Secret Intelligence Service had developed espionage and intelligence to a fine art during World War I. There were already masters of sabotage, guerrilla warfare, political warfare, deception, cryptoanalysis regular maritime warfare, technical intelligence, and secret intelligence when World War II began. During that war, they took intelligence into the vanguard of psychology, using drugs and hypnosis to program couriers to carry secret messages locked behind post-hypnotic blocks. The British were the first to employ a financing device known as the secret vote, or Unbouchered funds. This was money made available without recourse to legislation and accounted for only by a personal signature. As Anthony K. Brown observed, plainly, almost unlimited opportunity for fraud existed in this arrangement. Donovan's COI copied the unvouchered funds financing idea as well as many others from the British. He put great emphasis on the psychological warfare arm of intelligence. The British had also emphasized psychological war, but Donovan promoted as to the degree that he made the Psychological Warfare Division the central control organ of the entire espionage agency. In 1941, after the birth of COI, President Roosevelt asked Donovan to make specific proposals for the implementation of his ideas for psychological warfare and the development of an intelligence plan. Donovan submitted to the White House a paper entitled Memorandum of Establishment of Service of Strategic Information. In it, he clarified his idea of the relationship of information to strategic planning in total war. Pointing out the diplomat and defense inadequacies inadequacies, then-existing intelligence organization, Donovan said, It is essential that we set up a central enemy intelligence organization which would itself collect either directly or through existing departments of government, at home and abroad, pertinent information. Such information and data should be analyzed and interpreted by applying the experience of specialized trained research officials in the related scientific fields, including technical, economic, financial, and psychological. He emphasized that there is another element modern warfare, and that is, psychological attack against the moral and spiritual defense of a nation. In June 1942, the Office of Strategic Service was created to replace COI. Some time passed between the formation of the OSS and the issuance of its charter. The delay was created by Donovan's controversial idea that the Psychological Warfare Unit should be in charge of the entire intelligence operation. The intellectuals hovering around OSS argued with the Joint Oral Plans Committee about what exactly psychological warfare was and who should direct it in the name of the United States of America. Finally, a definition was agreed upon. The official definition of psychological warfare read, It is the coordination and use of all means, including moral and physical, by which the end is to be attained other than those of recognized military operations, but including the psychological exploitation of the result of those recognized military actions, which tend to destroy the will of the enemy to achieve victory and to damage his political or economic capacity to do so. These which tend to provide the enemy of the support, assistance, or sympathy of his allies or associates or of his neutrals, or to prevent his acquisition of such support, assistance, or sympathy, Or which tend to create, maintain, or increase the will to victory of our own people and allies to acquire, maintain, and increase the support, assistance, and sympathy of neutrals. And, as Donovan had wished, the Joint Chiefs of Staff decreed that all plans for projects to be undertaken by the Office of Strategic Services would be submitted to the Joint U.S. Chiefs of Staff through the Joint Psychological Warfare Committee for approval. The Joint Psychological Warfare Committee will refer to such papers as it deems necessary to the Joint Staff Planners prior to submission to the U.S. Joint Chiefs of Staff. The Joint Psychological Warfare Committee will take final action on all internal administration plans pertaining to the Office of Strategic Services. The lifespan of OSS was less than three years. During that period of time, it developed psychological warfare into an effective weapon against the minds of civilian and military populations, foreign and domestic alike. To wage effective psychological war, the OSS needed background information on United States citizens. Thus, the burglary of private files was sanctioned. The pattern of ex-constitutional clandestine activities within the United States, which came to the public's attention with Watergate, the Iran-Contra affair, and so on, began in 1945 when the OSS broke into the office of Amarisha America, an alleged communist publication. The OSS illegal entry was followed by a legal FBI search three months later but no evidence that Amaranysha was engaged in submersive activity was ever found. Throughout the war, Donovan never lost sight of the fact that while OSS was a wartime expedient, it also was an experiment to determine the nature of peacetime U.S. intelligence structure in the post-war period. Eventually, OSS did provide the framework for the peacetime intelligence service, through which the United States supposedly continued the bitter moral and territorial struggle against Communists. By a small, humorous tryst of fate, it was on October 31, 1944, Halloween, the traditional day for spooks and dirty tricks, when President Roosevelt once again turned to Donovan for his views. According to the official story, the President asked Donovan to develop a plan for the Organization of Intelligence Service which would function alter the cessation of hostilities. In November, Donovan submitted to the President his proposal for the creation of a central intelligence service. In his memorandum, Donovan proposed liquidation of OSS once the wartime necessity had ceased. He was anxious, however, to preserve the intelligence functions developed by OSS, so he repeated his original COI concept of a central authority reporting directly to the president which would collect and analyze intelligence material required for planning and implementation of national policy and strategy. Though in the midst of war, Donovan wrote, we are also in a period of transition between which, because we are aware, will take us into the tumult of rehabilitation. An adequate and ordinary intelligence system will contribute to informed decisions. We have now in the government the trained and specialized personnel needed for the task this talent should not be dispersed on September 20th 1945 OSS was officially terminated by executive order 9620 research and analysis functions foreign nationals recruiting were transferred to the department of state the remainder of the OSS functions were transferred to the Department of War. That same day, the new President Harry S. Truman sent a letter to Dunavum informing him of the executive order to close OSS and thanking him for his outstanding service. The President wrote, in part, you may well find satisfaction in the achievements of the office and take pride in your own contribution of, to them. These are themselves large rewards. Great additional reward for your efforts should lie in the knowledge that the peacetime intelligence services of the government are being erected on the foundation of the facilities and resources mobilized through the Office of Strategic Services during the war. Hidden behind the president's compliment was the fact that Donovan was shut out from the formation of the CIA because of a major character flaw. He had a strong dislike of organization. Whether Donovan was really the right man for the job of chief of America's first intelligence service is debatable. Success in covert operations depends upon an efficient bureaucracy and good judgment and authority. In many cases, Donovan displayed neither. At the heart, he was an activist who did not even like the personalities of conventional administrators. Stuart Alsop said that he ran OSS like a country editor. In every respect, OSS was Donovan's child, OSS historian R. Harris Smith wrote. He nourished the agency in its infancy, and it bore the stamp of his personality. That stamp carried over into the new peacetime intelligence agency, the CIA, the first in American history. But while Donovan was the grandfather of the cryptocracy, its techniques and much of their rationale behind them were the work of the Dulles brothers. The following review of the Dulles rise to prominence shows the manner in which cryptocrats form their liaisons. On the evening of the day South Korea was invaded, President Truman had hastily returned to Washington from his home in Independence, Missouri. He gathered his principal advisers together at the White House to discuss the emergency. Unanimously, his advisors recognized the gravity of the situation and agreed with General Omar Bradley, then the head of the Chiefs of Staff, who said that intelligence reports indicated Russia was not yet ready for war. But in Korea, they are obviously testing us, and the line ought to be drawn right now. Quickly, Truman ordered General Douglas MacArthur to provide military protection for the delivery of arms to the South Koreans and to evacuate American dependents. He instructed the military chiefs to prepare the necessary orders for the eventual use of American units. On the following day, he said he was convinced that the Republic of Korea needed to help at once if it was not able to be overrun. Truman was given CIA reports which indicated that Korea was a repetition on a larger scale or the Berlin blockade. The intelligence reports reports further indicated that North Korean communists would eventually prove to be a threat to Japan, Formosa, and the American base in Okinawa. It was the first time that domino theory was used. The president, acting on the advice of the CIA, ordered MacArthur to give immediate naval and air support to the South Korean army without allowing him to order his troops to cross the 38th parallel. This act of drawing a political rather than a strategic boundary was later used in the disastrous Vietnam campaign. MacArthur's zeal and military instinct disposed him to blindness concerning such arbitrary boundaries. His expressed urge to attack China with nuclear weapons eventually led to his unprecedented dismissal by Truman. MacArthur may have had the knowledge and the skill to win the Korean conflict unconditionally, but such a military victory in the light of history did not fit into the long-range war of attrition the cryptocracy supported as a tool of the military-industrial complex against the communists. Domestic politics also served to compound the power of the new cryptocracy, which was then cutting its teeth in Southeast Asia. In 1952, when Dwight D. Eisenhower was elected President of the United States, he appointed John Foster Dulles as Secretary of State and allowed Foster's brother Allen, who was then the CIA's Deputy Director of Plans, the clandestine operations branch of CIA, to take over directorship of the CIA one year later. According to Towns and Hoops, who served in both the Truman and Johnson administrations, Though the seeds were sown by Truman, it was under the Eisenhower administration that the Cold War was pervasively institutionalized in the United States. He described the Cold War's chief manifestations as strident moralism, self righteous and often apocalyptic rhetoric, a determined effort to ring the Soviet Union and China with anti communist military alliances, a dramatic proliferation of American overseas military bases and a rising flow of the American military equipment for foreign armies accompanied by American officers and men to provide training and advice. The posture of the imperative total confrontation, he said, thus came to full development during the Eisenhower period. By 1960 the United States government was not only positioned and determined to restrain the major communist powers but also determined through an implicit extension of logic the internal momentum generated by a large and powerful military, foreign affairs, bureaucracy to control the peace and character of political change everywhere. In the chill of the Cold War, few Americans remembered that John Foster Dulles had been pro-Nazi before Hitler invaded Poland. No one thought either to question the fact that while John Foster Dulles was running the State Department and therefore dealing with friendly governments, his brother Allen was running the CIA, which he once described as a State Department for dealing with unfriendly governments. No one seemed at all disturbed by the Dulles dynasty, and only a handful of people realized to what extent the Dulles brothers held power in the Eisenhower administration. Lieutenant Colonel L. Fletcher Prouty was the Pentagon's chief briefing officer assigned to the White House during the Eisenhower administration. He worked closely with Alan Dulles in coordinating military support for the various clandestine political operations undertaken by the CIA. He knew the intimate working arrangements of the Dulles brothers and the cryptocracy they were building. In his book, The Secret Team, Colonel Prouty gave a glimpse of how the Dulles brothers worked the president. That evening, before his usual tennis game on his backyard court, Alan Dulles dropped by his brother's secluded house just off Massachusetts Avenue and discussed the operation which involved an ambitious plane and Polish pilot to run under a CIA business cover. Foster agreed that Eisenhower would go along with it. He walked over to the wall lined with bookshelves and picked up the White House telephone which connected directly with the White House operator. All he said was, is the man busy? Foster Dulles opened with Boss, how did you do it at burning tree today? Well, six holes is better than nothing. Yes, I've been talking here with Alan. He has a proposal he wants to clear with you. He feels it is very important and will lift the morale of the Franks boys. Frank Wisner was then Director of Intelligence of Clandestine Operations. You know, since Korea and Guatemala, you haven't had them doing much. Will you see him tomorrow morning? Fine. How's mommy? Okay, boss, I'll speak to you, Alan. 9.30, thank you. Good night. There's not much left to do, Proudy said. The flight would be scheduled. A relevant analysis of the Brother Act is provided by David Weiss and Thomas Ross. The Dulles brothers embodied in dualism and indeed the moral dilemma of the United States foreign policy since World War II. Foster Dulles reflected the American ethic, the work as we should like it to be. While he took the public's position, his brother was free to deal with nasty realities to overturn governments and to engage in backstage political maneuvers all over the globe with the CIA's almost unlimited funds. This is not to say that the same two-sided foreign policy would never have evolved to the director of the CIA and the Secretary of State, having been brothers. Even very likely would have, but the natural friction between the objective and methods of the diplomats and the spooks between the State Department and the CIA was to an extent reduced because of the Dulles brothers. There is consequently less of a check and balance. John Foster and Alan Dulles had worked together before coming to government, Foster was the star attorney of the international law firm of Sullivan and Cromwell. He persuaded his partners to take Alan to soften up customers, which Alan had a great gift for. Eventually Sullivan and Cromwell sent Alan to Berlin to negotiate private affairs with the German industrial barons before the war. After the war broke out, he was sent to Switzerland with OSS, where undercover he used his former business contacts inside Germany to supply information for his many spectacular single-handed intelligence coups against the Axis. Though Alan Dulles was more gifted as a diplomat than his elder brother Foster, it was Foster who can be considered the mastermind of the Cold War aberration. Foster played upon the fear of communists and implemented the world-pacing Foreign policy of the Pax Americana, which eventually led to our involvement in Vietnam. It was his Cold War campaign at home that made citizens tremble in fear of communist attack and their children's crouch search under school desks and atomic air drills. It was John Foster Dulles, in the company of men like Senator Joe McCarthy and Richard Nixon, who presented the specter of the Communist menace to the American people. They convinced the nation that the Communists were about to unleash a global war and even a direct nuclear attack upon the United States. During Eisenhower's 1952 campaign for the presidency he promised to peacefully bring about freedom for the captive nations. John Foster Dulles later repeated Eisenhower's promise omitting however the word peacefully. Lest we judge John Foster Dulles unfairly by the standards of our own time, it might be said that, to his mind, the must have seemed to have been good reasons for invoking the communist threat. As Senator Frank Church's 1976 Senate Committee to Study Governmental Operations said, the extent to which the urgency of the communist threat had become a shared perception is difficult to appreciate. More likely, there was another, more insidious reason for the Cold War, the economy. A glance at a historical graph of the American business cycle will show that since the Civil War, economic depressions tend to precede and follow U.S. wars. Dulles' generation came to power in World War II after having suffered the longest and deepest depression in American history. It could be considered natural for them to overreact to the recessions of 1945 to 1946 and 1949 to 1950 by fomenting war, hot or cold, to feed the military industrial base of the economy. The research and development of death-dealing technology creates the need for unprecedented secrecy. The instrument of keeping those secrets was the cryptocracy. Cold War strategy proved to be economically successful without having to risk a full-scale nuclear war and simply by arming the world against communism through weapons marketing propaganda and the psychological warfare of the Cold War scheme. The United States achieved a capital goods boom unequaled in modern history. In the most simple terms, arms constituted the bulk of the United States exports from World War II to the present and figured as the single most important industry which maintained the United States' trade balance. The central core of the Dulles Brothers' American containment policy grew from the CIA's covert operations and propaganda efforts. The mood of those times is reflected in top-secret reports submitted by the Second Hoover Commission to President Eisenhower in September 1954 and made public by former CIA man Harry Watsiki. The report urged the United States to make its aggressive, covert, psychological, political, and paramilitary organization more effective, more unique, and, if necessary, more ruthless than employed by the enemy. We are facing an implacable enemy whose avowed objective is world domination by whatever means, at whatever cost. There are no rules in such a game. We must... Must learn to subvert, sabotage, and destroy our enemies by more clever, more sophisticated, and more effective methods than they used in us. According to Rodzick, the next year a National Security Council director reaffirmed the executive commitment to covert operations. It's instructed the CIA to continue creating problems for international communism, to reduce its strength and its control worldwide and to increase the capacity and the will of people and nations to resist international communism. It specifically reaffirmed the CIA's authority to develop underground resistance and facilitate covert and guerrilla operations. Although the Cold War is generally said to date back to 1948 with the Berlin blockade and the Greek Civil John Foster Dulles contributed to its architecture before the office came to be in 1953. He epitomized the fearful gestalt of his generation, took hold of the floundering Cold War strategy, and molded it with his personality. He was found of quoting Alexander Hamilton, who wrote in the Federalist Papers, Safety from external danger is the most important, powerful director of national conduct. Hamilton's statement was taken at face value. seems quite innocent, but in the context of John Foster Dulles' materialistic and puritan of upbringing, it is not difficult to see how he constructed it to mean something quite different than Hamilton intended. Hamilton's thoughts gave Dulles the moral rationale to try and overwhelming motivate national political and industrial economic conduct by posing a external danger, the threat of nuclear war initiated by the international communist conspiracy. If at the end of World War II, the growth of our economy, still the strongest and richest in the world, did depend upon the military-industrial complex for sustenance, then Dulles' Cold War saved the U.S. from certain recession. Without the threat of communism, what could be the free world have armed against And if the health of the U.S. economy continues to depend on that merger of military-industrial interests, then what threat will come to replace the Cold War? In his farewell address to the nation in 1960, President Eisenhower issued his famous warning about the military-industrial complex. Our military organization today bears little relation to that known of any other predecessors in peacetime or, indeed, by fighting men of World War II or Korea. Until the latest of our world conflicts, the United States had no armaments industry. We annually spend on military security alone, more than the net income of all United States corporations. Now, this conjunction of an immense military establishment and a large arms industry is a new in the American experience. The total influence, economic, political, even spiritual, is felt in this every city, in every state house, every office, and in the federal government. We recognize the imperative need for this development, yet we must fail to comprehend its grave implications. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. We should take nothing for granted. Eisenhower accurately predicted the course of history. The prospect of domination of the nation's scholars by federal employment, project allocations, and the money of power and the power of money is even present and is gravely to be regarded. Yet, in holding scientific research and discovery in respect, as we should, we must be alert to the equal and opposite danger that public policy could itself become the captive of the scientific technological elite. The Cold War was World War III, a war waged largely against the human mind. A war war waged largely with words, the most powerful tool of behavior modification. In the beginning, the men who had won World War II with advanced weaponry were less artful in the use of the new psychological warfare. As the Cold War escalated, propaganda was followed by sabotage, assassinations, paramilitary covert operations, and limited police actions before the arsenal for waging invisible war was developed. America had traditionally been a free and open society but after the war, U.S. leaders held in their hands an awesome technological superiority. While being the love object of government, the new technologies, especially nuclear energy, made the leaders fearful of losing their monopoly. That fear gave rise to the belief that the new secret agencies and operations were needed to guard against technological thefts by foreign governments. The Cold War was a secret war in more ways than one. Psychological warfare originally waged only against enemy countries eventually came home. Nazi war criminals, experts in the black crafts of mind control were allowed to immigrate to the US under Project Paperclip. Most were employed by the US cryptocracy. With the Nazi and P- Nazis in place, the psychological war began against the American people. It was waged against beliefs and free thought cryptocracy which is still supported by all the power of the federal government, but which operates outside the chain of governmental command. Often it takes the form of privatized governments, with the controls appearing to be vested in the ordinary business community. In any event, behind it is a secret bureaucracy become paranoid, a cryptocracy mad with power whose most powerful weapons are aimed at the human mind. Although the Central Intelligence Agency has long been the convenient symbol for all those who have committed atrocities in the name of national security, the secret bureaucracy, the cryptocracy, does not consist solely of the CIA. It is a well-vast network of alliances between individuals and a number of government agencies, normally thought to be outside the intelligence field. Since the cryptocracy violates every constitutional principle as a matter of course, commits every crime known to man in the interest of national security, it cannot entirely rely on the patriotism of its agents to keep its secrets. Therefore, no single individual is told more than he or she needs to know. Their cryptocracy is a brotherhood reminiscent of the ancient secret societies with rights of initiation and indoctrination programs to develop in it its loyal membership a special understanding of its mysteries. It has secret codes and oaths of silence which reinforce the sense of elitism necessary for the maintenance of its strict loyalty. It is automated, organized in the mode of computer, where all have access to general knowledge and the most obvious aims and goals, but where the individual is isolated by tribal rituals and compartmentalization. It is a technocratic organization without ideology, loyalty only to the spoken expedient and undefined patriotism. Its recruits are schooled in the writings of Nico Machiavelli. Its members are anonymous. Its funds are secret. It even has operational history is a secret. Even its goals are secret. It is a degenerate disease of the body politic which has grown rampant spreading so invisibly that after nearly four decades its existence is known only to be a handful of decision makers the cryptocracy is designed to function like a machine it also has the feelings of a machine not at all but unlike a machine it does have ambition to it human beings are so much more cheap hardware who perform certain sets of function which produce certain predetermined results. Human beings are valued relative to a cost and efficiency. The cryptocracy is the perfect cybernetic organism. Pure logic at the planning level. Nothing but automatic responses in the field. If a prospective agent cannot be recruited by an appeal to patriotism, he is bribed. If he cannot be bribed, he is blackmailed. If he refuses to be blackmailed, he is programmed. If all of these fail, he is killed. For it must not be known that he has ever been approached, so important is national security. It is sometimes hard to determine whether the cryptocracy is working for or against the interest of the U.S. President to whom its constitutional agencies are supposed to be accountable. Many of its crimes, now a matter of public record, would indicate that it has often worked against the President. It, as we know, worked against the U.S. Constitution and the American people. It has needlessly caused the death of innocent people who were working for it, just as it has tortured and murdered those who have stood in its way. Documented atrocities and criminal blunders have been revealed by congressional investigations, but few have been brought to trial. Of those convicted, only a paltry amount of the time had been served. Little congressional, judicial, or executive action has taken to limit its power or ferret out its leaders. Figureheads have been charged, changed, but the organization and the National Security Act which has bred this cancer remains in essence unchanged, unchallenged by the press, and unnoticed by the people. The cryptocracy serves big business and spends a good deal of time and energy supplying American corporations with industrial intelligence. These favors offered only to those companies friendly to the cryptocracy may be repaid by such things as political campaign contributions to candidates who are either sympathetic to or compromised by favors from the cryptocracy. In the past the cryptocracy has supported both foreign and domestic politicians with such campaign contributions. The old boy network or retired cryptographs working within major corporations plays an important role in the cryptocracy's international influence. Secret funds are shunted not only from from one agency of government to another, but also from agency to corporation and then, under cover of the corporation's legal business activities, throughout the world, wherever expediency dictates. Through its authorized functions, the cryptocracy controls the United States government. It feeds the executive branch, quote, intelligence reports, which are often slanted and sometimes falsified, so that the policy decisions which result will be those which fit the cryptocracy's game plan. Like a 15th century Machiavellian princedom that has been computerized and automated, the cryptocracy has systems manipulated the American consciousness by justifying its existence, by citing an exaggerated danger from communism it has justified its own totalitarianism by convincing key politicians that fire must be fought with fire. The practice of the cryptocracy, once officially sanctioned only in operations outside the U.S., have become internalized. Those practices have included spying, stealing, blackmail, and murder, even within the borders of the country, is supposed to protect and defend. There was nothing hypocritical about the KGB's employment of totalitarianism. Police state tactics The Soviet equivalent of the CIA, the KGB was an extension of the Soviet political system, which was totalitarian. Neither was anything hypocritical about the Chinese use of brainwashing on American POWs in Korea. The Chinese have brainwashed 3.5 million of their own people, though generally they used techniques less sophisticated than mind control, but no less drastic than starvation, sleep interruption, and isolation. But the U.S. cryptocracy is the ultimate hypocrisy, subversive to its own government's democratic structure. It operates with methods which are not permitted in most democracies and certainly not permitted by the Constitution of the United States. In war, a successful campaign greatly depends upon the element of surprise. Since the beginning of human disputes, warriors have found it desirable to keep their strengths and weaknesses concealed. The use of new technology has both the strength and the surprise which so often has determined the outcome of war. The first elephant to be outfitted with spikes and used in battle was a great terror to the bow and arrow warrior as the atomic bomb was to the Japanese. The cryptocracy has long known the only way it can maintain the upper hand in the global power game is to stay in the vanguard of technology. To that end, it has employed all the research and development the federal government could buy. Since World War II, the cryptocracy has used electronic technology to manipulate foreign peoples as well as Americans through the campaign of carefully planned misinformation, disinformation, and propaganda. The cryptocracy's existence depends upon the such manipulation of public belief. Since it cannot openly argue its cause, it relies upon persuasion and indoctrination to accomplish its goals and win supports for its ends. The existence of the cryptocracy also depends upon absolute secrecy. Without it, it's powerless. In the late 1990s, the cryptocracy is trying to control the encryption of data on the proposed information highway. The cryptocracy was trying to arrange things supposedly in the interest of national security so that it will make it easier to wiretrap the electronic mail and computer communications between private citizens and business alike. The scheme was to ramrod a system which allows no other encryption than the clipper chip developed in the secret by the National Security Agency. The adoption of this plan would have made it impossible for private citizens to encrypt their own communications and thus not be able to protect themselves against eavesdropping. What appeared to only be an attempt to control information at its source was actually an attempt to curb freedom of speech. The ultimate target, of course, was and still is the human mind. It was CIA which instigated and directed the initial mind control research, and with invisible hands kept each group of scientists isolated from the other. Each group researching mind control was kept apart from other groups and conducting simultaneous interfacing experiments so that. No one, except the agency, would be able to put all the pieces of the puzzle together. The basis for mind control techniques already existed in scientific literature, but in a fragmented, incomplete, and unassimilated state. The cryptocracy enlisted the aid of scientists who then developed these fragments into usable techniques. These scientists worked independently, each on only one smart of the overall plan, and by and large they were ignorant of their intended use of the final product of their research operation mind control was not the plan of a mere cult of intelligence it did not stop at intelligence gathering but went on to investigate active operations on its own those conspiracies against the freedom which were revealed by the investigations into watergate the intelligence community and multinational corporations minor compared to the conspiracy of mind control which has developed in this country. Although the first victims of Operation Mind Control were, perhaps, especially suitable personality types for such use, with advances being made in the psychosciences, all but a few of us may eventually be victimized. The power of mind control resides in its use as a superior security technique. As such, it is almost a foolproof as that employed by the great pharaoh of Egypt, who carried to the final resting place by loyal slaves. Had the same slaves killed and buried along with him, so that all knowing knowledge of access to the tomb would remain secure for centuries. Mind control arranges that slaves of the intelligence community, witnesses, couriers, and assassins are protected from their own memories and guilt by amnesia. These slaves may be left alive, but the knowledge they possess is buried deep within the tomb of their own mind with techniques which can keep the truth hidden even from those who have witnessed it. It is the ultimate debriefing, the final security measure short of assassination. The conspiracy of mind control veils the secret of all secrets. It hides the cabal which possesses its power, so even if the CIA and other intelligence agencies were closed down tomorrow, the cryptocracy, continue to function. For as with the Mafia, once you are a member, you are a member for life. The power of mind control, and ultimately the cryptocracy that uses it, resides with those who have culled the fruits of psychoscience since the late 1930s. They now possess the mature body of knowledge upon which the coercive art is built. To review the labyrinth of events, out of the natural fear of technology growing natural reliance on secrecy. Secrecy led to covert control and produced a well-organized institution of national security. Institutionalized secrecy directed covert research and produced Operation Mind Control, the ultimate technology of secrecy and control.